Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, and welcome to How to Eat an Elephant. My name is Emily, and I'm joined today by my sister-in-law, Megan. Hello. And today, we are uh, missing Ian, who has abandoned us for today's recording. He is out on the road, and I think it's really funny that, I feel like this happened in War and Peace, too, Mm. that he's gone, not when it's like intense uh, not like when it's a romantic scene not when it's intense personal drama or relationship or character building it's always the drums of war like (laughs) the most masculine themes are when ian dips you'd think he did it on (laughs) purpose you know you would except for like here it is here we are we have made it a thousand pages into les miserables and now today the revolution starts. So I have an important question for you, Megan. Do I hear do people, you sing? Hear people <laughs> sing? I knew it. I do. I hear them. I actually hear more than the people singing. I hope that this doesn't translate to the recording, but it is springtime. And there is a gardener in the park across from my house with a weed whacker. <laughs> and I hear the people singing and the gardener mowing everything in sight. So I really hope that you guys can't hear that. It's loud. It's loud in my head spring right now. Is in, spring is in the air. Revolution, Revolution. is in the earth. Who knows? I thought you were going to say that Ian dips whenever the section gets a little bit philosophical. Because there's a big, long passage. All of book 10 for us today, ladies and gentlemen, is splitting hairs as he tries to decide if there's a difference between an insurrection, a riot, and an uprising, which I thought were synonyms. (laughs) (laughs) Which, and he basically says later on, he's like, and now that we talk about 1832, I'm going to use them as though they were synonyms, but what I mean is it's an insurrection. (laughs) They also might be cinnamon. They might be very tasty. Cinnamons. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we all describing an insurrection. Yeah. So I guess Megan and I, so the other thing about when Ian leaves is that Ian always brings like, even if he agrees with us, he somehow makes it seem like it's a debate yeah. that we're having. Yeah, he brings a but salty when, edge. <laughs> when you and I talk about stuff, it's like... We just agree a lot. Very agree, green, which might be good, given that this is a section about war, but also kind of funny. <laughs> Maybe the section itself will make us fight. I don't know. It's very martial in its themes. Yeah, it's true. I heard the, I heard the song in my head the whole time. Yeah, it was for me, it was mixing, though, with a heart full of love because we just had the <laughs> the uh, uh, Marius and Cosette scene. And he's also really dramatic. He finds out she's going to leave and he's like, well, I guess I'd rather be dead then. And isn't there that's a, actually, a line isn't of that one day more? Oh, it's one yeah. day more. That's the one. Yeah. Where he's like, well, without Cosette, I'd rather be dead. Lamarck is dead. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we I were dead. <laughs> Okay, so book nine, which we started with for today, starts with just a couple vignettes of checking in. Literally, the chapter is called Where Are They Going? 
and it checks in on three characters, Jean Valjean, Marius, and oddly enough, Monsieur Mabeuf. Ah, yes. So do you want to kind of yeah, let's just tell do a us quick where, where, where are they going, Megan? Mm, where are they going? <laughs> well, Jean Valjean, for starters, has has strangely given up all concern for Cosette, though I think she's being very fishy. He's not concerned about her anymore and is sure that she's doing great. Doesn't hang out with her that much anymore, which might be part of the problem. But he is concerned with bigger things. He saw Thenardier hanging around his neighborhood and recognized him. And he knows that in the current political situation in Paris, bad guys like Thenardier will draw the police. And so he doesn't want the police to know where he and Cosette are living. And he's decided that he's going to move them to England so that they're far, far away from all of his history and the danger that has always kind of been hounding him through the story. So he's decided that he's going to take Cosette and move. We kind of knew this already from Cosette telling Marius we're leaving, but now we know why and where, where to. Yeah, because it was kind of weird before, because he didn't know that they were going to break in on him. Right. But it turns out that he kind of did because mm-hmm. he saw him around town. Yeah. Do we think so? He gets this ominous note that says move out. Do we think that's Eponine? Well, I definitely think it is Eponine. So he sees a like an address scratched in the wall, which of course we see. Cosette and Marius. It's all about <laughs> Which, Cosette like, and Marius. That, how unsubtle can you be? Like, you have to, don't leave marks behind every, like, that's not how you be sneaky. I know. <laughs> they thought they were doing so well, but he immediately picked up on the address scratched in the wall and knows that someone has violated the garden, which is kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> but then he gets this note. He's hanging out outside after a big long walk and a note falls on his head that says move out. And he turns and looks, and there's like this boyish figure. How is it described? I'm looking for the actual section. Oh, some creature. Looks like a woman dressed like a man yes. or something like that, some right? Some creature larger than a child, smaller than a man, dressed in a gray shirt and trousers of dirt-colored corduroy, jumped the parapet and slid into the gully of the Champ de Mars. So it's happening. I mean, for goodness sake, how else would you describe she, her? She's kind of a ghost who haunts this whole section, and he never comes out and says it's her. And like... I think the only reason I'm suspicious that it's her is because of the musical. Would you have, if you didn't know the musical, would you have guessed it's her? I think I would have. I think the only two options, if it's going to be a character we recognize, are Gavroche and Eponine. And you wouldn't describe Gavroche as larger than a boy because kind of the thing about his character is that he is a boy. He's a little boy. He's a shockingly small one, you know? That's interesting, though, that she's just kind of, she haunts all of these scenes, Mm. but it's never really about her. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. She's very ghostly. Well, we then check in on Marius, who stops by to say hello to his lady love after being rejected or after rejecting, I should say, his grandfather. And uh, he promised to meet her 48 hours later. And so he stops by, but it's too late. Jean Valjean has already moved them out. And so he, he looks in and instead of doing anything normal, like wow, they can't be that far away. It's only been four to eight hours. I can probably catch up. (laughs) He just (laughs) despairs. Yeah. He says, well, there's nothing for him but to die. (laughs) That's the end of that. This is quite a leap in logic. (laughs) Also, he went armed, which I thought was interesting. He like suddenly reveals that he still has those two pistols from Javert. (laughs) he just stole from Javert. He just stole them and never gave them back. And so he decides he needs those to go check on Cosette, which seemed strange. Seems that he had, you know, ulterior in the back of his mind, other things he would do. 
to you think to like free her from Jean Valjean? I don't know what he's thinking. I mean, he's never taken weapons into the garden before. Violating the garden. <laughs> exactly. Jean Valjean is on to something. <laughs> well, so this this strange man woman figure comes to him. Oh, he no, I guess he does say here at the end of this section something that sounded like Eponine's hoarse voice. Oh. So yeah, maybe okay. he is kind of showing his hand to us there a little bit. That that makes sense. Tells him that his friends are waiting for him at the barricade. And so because he has decided that life is no longer worth living because apparently he can't, you know, try to catch up with Cosette or, you know, maybe one day find her again or like, he just decides to go die on the barricades. If I were Cosette and I watched this happen, I watched Marius die so easily to a future with me. <laughs> just I'd didn't try to chase her at all. No, for goodness sake, <laughs> try a little bit, you know? <laughs> all right. Okay. What about our third person, Monsieur Mabuff? Well, okay. Monsieur Mabuff is the most interesting of all three of these little summaries because we last saw him on the brink of starvation with his housekeeper, with his aged housekeeper. And receiving a gift from the heavens because Gavroche pickpockets a pickpocket who got money from Jean Valjean. And Gavroche throws that pouch of money. You guys will remember this was a couple sections ago. Throws it over the garden wall right into Monsieur Mabeuf's lap. And we all assumed, oh my goodness, this is like divine intervention into the life of this sweet old man. He's going to be fine now. Look at all those ducats, you know? Yeah, we even had like thematic conversations about that. Like... Right. <laughs> Help comes from outside, all of that. Well, what we learned at the beginning of Monsieur Mabeuf's little section, this is book 10, chapter 3. No, book 9, chapter 3? Book 9. Book 9, chapter 3. This is the first sentence. Jean Valjean's purse was useless to Monsieur Mabeuf. Monsieur Mabeuf, in his venerable childlike austerity, had not accepted the gift of the stars. Wow. I can sort of understand it because, like, your mom tells you if you find a 20 laying on the floor of the mall that you should return it to the cashier, not just pocket it, right? Like, <laughs> I remember her saying that, but I don't know if I would do it. <laughs> Is that showing my hand to our listeners? I mean, I don't know. It's one of those moral quandaries that you talk about in a philosophy class in college. Who's really yeah. hurt by you taking that 20? <laughs> Yeah, so what Gavroche intends is like this, this divine action, or like he's trying to, or a just action is just completely lost on Monsieur Mabeuf. And as a result, if that's the first thing that we know about him, then this chapter, which is brutal, as he slowly declines and sells all of his books one at a time to, to eat, I had a harder time. Well, this also is revealing of myself, but I had a harder time feeling sorry for him. Because he actually received a gift from heaven that would have kept him together. And he rejected it, and now he's starving to death. And it feels very much like cause and effect here, buddy. Yeah. I wonder if there's a parallel between his reaction and Jean Valjean's to the note from heaven move out. Like, to both of them receive something dropped from above. Jean Valjean takes action, and Monsieur Mabeuf ignores it. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Jean Valjean leaves Paris while this insurrection is brewing and Monsieur Mabeuf joins the action. I just, this is so, there is, I'm going to say complex. It's a complex situation that Hugo paints, but I'm tempted to say that Hugo is actually contradicting himself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a 
Okay, how so? I don't think I don't know that that's probably true. Well, okay, so from here we get into chapter ten, and chapter ten is a long meditation on the difference between uprising or rioting and insurrection. And like the clearest definition that he gives is that an uprising is the is a faction turning against the whole and an insurrection is the whole turning against a faction and he says an uprising may stem from legitimate reasons in fact he said i'm gonna find that section because yeah this is the beginning of book 10 everyone so page 1047 he says in the most usual cases rioting springs from a material fact Insurrection is always a moral phenomenon. The riot is Massanelio. There's so much history in this section that I just it went way over my head. Yep, totally. Um, but the insurrection is Spartacus. I got that one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I am Spartacus. <laughs> insurrection borders on the mind, riot on the stomach. Gaster is irritated. But Gaster certainly is not always wrong. In cases of famine, riot, Bouzance, for instance, has a true, pathetic, and just point of departure. Still, it remains a riot. Why? Because uh, fundamentally right, it was wrong in form. Savage though right, violent though strong, it struck haphazardly. It walked like the blind elephant, crushing. It left behind it the corpses of old men, women, and children. Without knowing why, it poured out the blood of the inoffensive and the innocent. To nurture the people is a good aim. To massacre it is an evil means. So rioting springs from material fact. And as he's been super clear in this whole book, material fact is a true reality all the way back to Fontaine, that the suffering of the people is evil. But when it's based on that, well, this is actually really helpful given the conversations we've had in the past. Like, if the violence is based on the material fact, he says it's fundamentally right but wrong in form, it becomes savage. But if it's a moral aim, if it's for some kind of ideal, then it's okay. Yeah. So, at another place in the same big long section, he calls insurrection the truth's outburst of rage. And I think that ties into what you're saying. It's this moral center that's directing the violent action. So never is it purely about hunger or physical circumstance. It's got the truth or, like you're saying, the idea of moral goodness at its center to to drive it forward, to give it a purpose that outlasts each individual. So he claims here that other times in Paris, there have been riot. Rioting is not, is like native to Paris, so much so that Paris like does isn't even disturbed by it. Like people are like, oh, it looks like there's a little bit of trouble on the streets today. It looks like that might get ugly, and they just continue on with their day. But he says in 1832, which is the barricades that we're about to enter. He says that all of Paris was actually afraid at this point. It's like there's something greater than than the riot. There is some kind of fundamental moral spirit about 1832 that makes Paris afraid. And like it's so much so it like infiltrates the city and it's like it's something bigger 
than the people. It reminded me a lot of the way that Tolstoy describes the people in Moscow oh, yeah. when when the French invade, mm-hmm. that they there's just like a spirit that moves them to burn their own city. French, a little bit not not quite as um self-destructive as the Russians. <laughs> Although, sort of. Arguably, they're always kind of burning down their city. I mean, yeah, even yeah. in a modern sense, I'm thinking of France today. And France today is always rioting about something. I mean, the trains never <laughs> run on time because they're always on strike, you know? I think there's Hugo a line that's really that that funny. An uprising. <laughs> he would, he would, but he also says at one point, a modicum of uprising is desirable from the French point of view. Power is healthier after a riot, like a man after a rub down. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody needs to be rioting a little bit just to keep everyone on their toes. That experience explains so much about the French. Really, really does. <laughs> but you're right that this time, this particular uprising, <laughs> uprising. I mean, I'm so confused. I don't know which one to say. Uprising or insurrection. <laughs> I know. This particular conflict has Paris, even even Parisians themselves, upset and anxious. There's something in the air, a nervousness that's little known to Paris. So he would say at this point that it is a whole insurrecting against the faction, the faction being the monarchy, I guess. And we're told Louis-Philippe stays in his palace completely serene while this is happening. And the, the suffering of the people is the whole rising up against him. And it all starts just because of, of this death of this general that was prominent during the Napoleonic era. Is there more to this general that would help us understand why his death is so significant? Why it's such a catalyst? I did not look that up. I did look up whether or not Hugo is actually in this because, you know, sometimes he says he that he is. That. Yeah. <laughs> he really was. He was writing a play. While this happened, he was up in his rooms writing a play and heard a kerfuffle outside and then literally got caught in the streets between bullets. Um, so that did happen. But all I know about Lamarck is what he says here, that he he served the empire well and even afterwards became like he was not just a brave general, Hugo says, but he was an, an orator as well, that he remained a voice of the people and was beloved of them. So... As a result, his death is a catalyst to move them towards action. There's been all kinds of feelings of unrest in the city, but now they're going to do something about it. And he says that over the course of one night, no, one hour, 27 barricades rose from the ground in the marker, in the market quarter. And then he says they were all like, even though there was no kind of central coordination, it was all perfectly laid out, hmm. which given the outcome is questionable, but... Perfectly laid out, you mean? Yeah, he says it was like, strategically, it was flawless, the way that the people did this. So there is something like, there is that kind of providential Tolstoy hand guiding the people in this section, which is super interesting that it's a, we're like in, in Tolstoy, we're looking at a Russian victory. In this section, we're kind of looking at a French failure. I mean, it would eventually become the, the revolution of 1848, which would oust Louis-Philippe from the throne. But this one, 1832, is not successful. So the fact that it is guided by something like Providence is is maybe more pertinent to Hugo's theme about suffering. Mm, I like that. As opposed to Tolstoy's multiplicity of causes. <laughs> I thought I'd never say that phrase again. Uh, <laughs> I do think that Hugo is saying something like that as well. <laughs> but with more of an emphasis on the hand of Providence. Less, yeah. this is all a, a work of chance, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I say that I'm worried that he's contradicting himself because even though he says that this is a good moral cause and the people, like a lot of the people that we see in chapter 10 are really are upset and are arming themselves based on a political cause and they and they know what that is and they are they are coordinated for that. However, we can't forget that two of the people we just found out that are, are going to participate in it are Marius and Monsieur Mabeuf. Who are not in who, good places. No, like Marius is not doing this for the love of the cause. He abandoned the friends of the ABC a long time ago and has been his own in his own little world. And the only reason he's joining them is that he thinks his life is over. Yeah, and same could be said for Monsieur Mabeuf. I mean, here he is, depressed and despairing, and he's sold his last book and he's starving to death. And that's when he joins. He just sort right. of wanders out into it because he has lost all all desire to live. That doesn't seem to be a strong moral, morally justified cause that inspires right. them. It's it the seems material to be despair. Fact. Yeah, the material fact. Yeah. Exactly. And even like a material fact that could have been avoided in the case of Monsieur Mabeuf mm -hmm. because he didn't receive the gift from the hand of Providence. Yeah, there does seem to be a senselessness to the way that Monsieur Mabeuf is going about his life. And and a little bit Marius, too. That might be a good word, actually. It's senseless violence. It's senseless sacrifice. He's not sacrificing himself for someone. Marius isn't. He's full of self-pity. That's not a good reason. Right. So what do you think Hugo is doing there? Like, it seems that's it seems like a contradiction, right? If this is what the if when we look at the particulars of the people involved in the fighting, if this is what we find, is it really a glorious insurrection or is it just another riot? Well, it might be answered in book 11, in which we've got more characters, more evidence from our fleshed out people that Hugo has been building for us about reasons to join or ways that you behave in this insurrection. I think maybe a couple more touch points might be helpful in interpreting that question. We see Gavroche in addition to Monsieur Mabeuf. How does Gavroche participate? So Gavroche is like just wandering the streets like he does. And he he ends up participating in a very gamin sort of fashion just because everybody else is, I think. And he gets really taken with one of the followers of Ross, the one who rips the the notice off the board. And he kind of like hero worships him a little bit and like wants to be like these men that he's following. And he's singing these songs that do seem to join the spirit. Hugo says something interesting, like his songs partook of the popular song, but also of the warble of nature. So he's like this strange intermixing of the natural and the popular and he's just kind of innocent. Like, I don't know if he's actually a good example or not, because he is wandering the streets. He he steals a weapon from a secondhand shop and he is like proudly marching with these men. But he comes across a, a lancer from the National Guard, who is the enemy, uh, who represents the government, who's fighting them. And he, he sees that he's fallen off his horse and he helps him up and then continues on with his day. So he's not actually participating in fighting the enemy. He actually like inadvertently or maybe even like, I don't know, he just helps him. So I thought that was that is also it's like nobody really knows what they're doing is what it feels like, except for maybe Ross, who looks at the guy who tore the notice about that was from the church telling the people that 
not to have egg or they could have eggs for Lent. And he rips that off. And Angel Ross says, hey, like, that's not what we're fighting. Don't waste your energy there. And that does seem in keeping with what Hugo says that, like, it's it shouldn't just be like an outburst against all authority. It's very, like, purposed and and focused. But Anjaras really seems, of the people we meet, he seems to be the only one who really knows what he's doing. (laughs) Well, yeah, I would take it one step further. He's the only one with any kind of moral reason for this insurrection. I mean, to, to tie it back to our definition that we've offered, he's the only one really motivated, at least in an outspoken way, by a a moral justification. And everyone else flaming angel. Right. Everyone else is a follower. It's a little bit senseless. They're driven by suffering. And it's I don't know, their purposes are each individual and in some cases selfish. Yeah. Rather than elevated. I don't know if Hugo's definition that he's offered us is gonna hold up. Or I mean, yeah, so Angel Ross is like this representative of the ideal. And he is himself like a flaming star. He was described like a, a an angel from Ezekiel. And he's kind of untouchable. He's kind of like the stars that Hugo keeps referencing. And it makes him personally unlikable. At least that's kind of what we said the last time we spent any any length of time with him. But he, do, he might actually represent the cause that Hugo is talking about here. And... I wonder if this is actually a very Tolstoy idea that there is a moral ideal, but the people are joining for flawed reasons or naive reasons, but they're being marshaled. It's still the ideal that's like drawing them in. So it really is the hand of Providence using like broken vessels towards towards progress, Hugo would probably say. Well, right. If it's not forward moving, if it's not towards progress, then it can't apply as an insurrection. It doesn't qualify. So we hope Andre Ross is moving in a forward direction. He thinks he is. Apparently, nobody had really written about the uprising of 1832 or the insurrection of 1832. That Hugo was kind of one of the first to really focus on it. It was kind of lost in history. He even says something like that, doesn't he? In chapter 10, he says that... It was this was a little moment in history, but you can't have the Alps without like the little mountains surrounding it. Right. It's the little things of history that signal the greater things coming, which, you know, it does seem to tie into his larger themes about the little things and about the hope for something good coming, even in the face of of things that look like they don't like suffering or like defeat now it looks like failure but it's actually forward motion when you said it just it ties in with the theme of the little things all i could think of is gavroche talking about little people know when little people fight yeah (laughs) (laughs) just the musical is all i can think of these days i'm sure there is a deeper meaning to this scene but all i can think of is yes which song is it it's red and red and black yeah. yeah, all the big songs. Yeah, we just did them. The love song. A heart that you full mentioned. of love. We we crossed that yep. one off the list. One day more. One day more. It takes like funny. It takes like one chapter yeah. in this book. <laughs> I know. Well, I just I have so much more respect every time we get a little further into this book. I have more respect for the the director and writer of the musical because they really did a fabulous job, at least so far, of interpreting the thematic content of this novel and shortening it. 
I think Hugo himself would be pleased with what they're offering. And and man, we could all save a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm enjoying this project of reading it for real. We also still have not gotten to the sewers. And um, no, I'm getting worried. Which means they're coming. That means they're coming. And I don't know if you guys have held up your book recently and looked to see how far we are, but we're pretty far. And if the sewers don't come soon, then we don't get a conclusion in our story. We are you just shocked? get some sewers. Yeah, I'm looking at my bookmark now in the book. Are you shocked that we just got to the barricades? Yes, I am. I thought this story was about the barricades and the revolution. But actually, <laughs> I think that might just be the climax. Yeah, me too. Which is great. Good to know we're getting there to a climax. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, like, what is this book about? <laughs> well, that's the other thing. And maybe this is, I don't know if this is a closing comment and I should wait on it, but I can't exactly tell what the revolution is for. And if this story were about that, I feel that he would be more specific. He would let Ross speak and tell us what are the schoolboys gathering to fight for? Be specific, not just this ideal up in the heavens, but this is a practical thing we're fighting for. This is a, you know, some kind of policy that we need to be signed or we're not going to lay down our weapons. But there doesn't seem to be an action item or something that they're fighting for that's specific that way. And that gives me pause and makes me feel that unrest that he's talking about. Like, this does feel like rioting for the sake of rioting. And I need him to show me that this is not going to be a senseless bloodshed. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That is an interesting thing about this. I wonder, it, it might be that we're not French. and but that, He's I assuming you're that right, we know. Though. Yeah, but like, you're right. He doesn't come out and say it. There aren't any big political. We know that like, we know from his discussion of Louis Philippe that this has something to do with there still being there's still a monarchy right and like but what, that's why where is there we still are. a monarchy like, there's it's something to do with louis philippe it's something yeah. to do with the starvation of the poor people it's something yep. to do with suffering and an imbalance of power but all of that is vague and could be argued is the plight of the human condition no matter what society you live in you know that's not specifically french even so if the story is really I just think it's interesting. It ties into what we were saying about what the the conflict of our story really is and where the climax truly is. If we were going to do this story Center for Lit style and put it on a plot chart, I'm not sure that the revolution itself is one of the driving questions of the story. It might just be a backdrop. I think, yeah, I think there might actually be something hopeful to take from that. Mm. It might confirm what we've been saying about Hugo not being interested in having, this isn't a political allegory. Right. Like he hasn't he hasn't actually stopped and said and if like he has said that the problem is lack of education, the mistreatment of women, like he laid out his problems at the beginning of the story, but he's never said and the like these specific policies and action items right. are the things that's going to fix it. This is my soapbox. He's having a bigger conversation mm -hmm. than that. Like so the solution must his idea of the solution then, hopefully must not be in the workings of government, but it's something bigger than that. Yeah, maybe more more having to do with the stars and that eternal concept that we've been batting around in our in our episodes and the relationships between people and what makes life worth living. Big thematic questions are more his goal, which makes me trust yeah, him I think more. So. I mean, maybe that's just me, yeah. but 
I'm more interested in that than I am political philosophy. Right. Which she hasn't really super subjected us to. A little bit of history here and there, but... Which I appreciate. <laughs> it's good context. <laughs> there are. I just, I know so little about Paris and French history, and there are just so many names that mean absolutely nothing mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We need more footnotes. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I needed more footnotes in this section. Than I, yeah, that was actually a really helpful thing about the War and Peace edition that we read. I wonder, someone, if you know this, is there a scholarly edition of Les Mis out there that's unabridged? Oh, man, that would a, be so great. That would be so much better. I wish that Yeah, had thought of that. Yeah, that's actually, that's interesting. I just now put two and two together as you were saying that, that War and Peace, we really had such a great version of that text yep. to read and they'd done such a good job of annotating it so that you got an education as you were reading in Russian history in the interplay between Russia and France and it was fabulous. This is also fabulous and possibly more enjoyable but less of a lesson. Yep. I do I feel like there are other editions of paperback which we had a hard time finding when we were, because this one, the one that we chose that I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have because we recommended it, it says the only complete and unabridged paperback edition. But I don't know if that's true. Like I follow a couple of people on Instagram who unrelated to us were reading it and they have a big, beautiful, looks like the War and yes. Peace edition. Okay, I saw that too. And I, I lusted after their, their version. Yes, mm-hmm. because this one, okay, we'll just the typeface just open comes off honest. on your hands. It's like, yes. It is a mess to read this book. Is anyone else having that experience? My fingers or are like gray a, by the end. Yes. Or like, have you had the experience of trying to underline in it and like... You mess up the underline. This may be like just my no, own this OCD. Is, I've but definitely like, done this. You erased the yes. line and you've accidentally erased the line. You erased text. Hugo himself. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, this should not be erasable. <laughs> oh, yeah. So funny. Are you one of those who underlines with a ruler? Do you have a ruler with you when you are No, reading? I'm not that aggressive. Great. No, me neither. I did have a college professor <laughs> are, are who you? was, though. <laughs> really? Yeah. He had like a little tiny, like just the size of a, a piece of paper ruler that he would read all of his books with and he would underline with a ruler so that he never ever wow. made a mistake which that's amazing sounds intense to me i think he's a little ocd that does sound intense <laughs> i mean it would lead to it would negate the issue that i'm having right now i've crossed out whole lines and then just left it <laughs> can't tell if i'm emphasizing it or if i'm saying no, like, no. i'm editing you <laughs> so funny hmm. all right well Thank you for joining me today, Megan. Mm, this was I fun. It was very fun. Who needs Ian? Yeah. Don't tell him we said that. I missed him. I did. I always do. I know. I do too. I'm sure that he'll have lots of opinions when he comes back. Oh, he'll be salty with Monsieur Mabuff. I can see it right now. I, he'll be salty I with I think he might make some Shia LaBeouf references, actually. <laughs> oh my goodness. How did I not how? make that connection? I know. I've been thinking of it, but I was going to save it for Ian and then I couldn't. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Monsieur Mabuff, use the money. Just do it. Just, just do it. <laughs> All right. Well, let us know in the comments, listeners, if you think Monsieur Mabuff should have taken the money. If you had found a bag of money, would you have taken it? I would we have. We all know secretly yes. we would have. Let's just, you're in good company. Everyone be honest. Everyone's as bad as me, right? <laughs> all right. Well, until next time, my friends, when we will have Ian back with us. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. 
Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.